working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. The complete motion is the key to getting a nice groove. With the drum set, we only hear half of the motion. Whereas if you play the shaker or a tambourine, you hear both sides of the motion. The entire motion is critical in order to get the right feel and to get the timing right. That, ladies and gentlemen, was Steve Smith. And I'm happy to say that he is my guest today on the podcast Working Drummer. I'm your host, Matthew Krauss. Steve is a legend, and he does not need much introduction. You might know him from his years with Journey. You might know him as a band leader with Vital Information. You might know him from his videos, instructional books, You might know him from all these things, but one thing that you do know, Steve is a badass. And he is a super nice guy, and it was a lot of fun to talk to him today. On Monday, December 12th, 2016, the Nashville Drummer Jam will be doing a tribute to Steve Smith. And if you can be here in Nashville to see it, you can see and experience how deep this drummer has influenced so many of us. Uh, My thanks to them, of course, for connecting me with Steve and making this interview possible. We were going to try and um, do it over Skype, as he is on the West Coast, but a phone call was the best we could do. So uh, Mike Jackson was able to help me clean some of this up, and it sounds pretty good. But I can tell you that if you have headphones, it might be a little bit clearer As always, you can go to WorkingDrummer.net to find out more about this podcast and other interviews that we've done. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, While you're at the website, you can do a quick survey until the 15th of December. We've got that survey up there. It takes 20 seconds to do. It's really helpful for us. And if you do the survey, you will be entered into a contest to win some heads from Aquarian. Please rate and review our podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, you can subscribe to the podcast where an episode will be sent to your smart device. Every week, every Wednesday, we have a new episode. So we all love vintage gear, and I bet you know someone that owns an old Les Paul or maybe a 56 Fender Strat that never leaves the home. And the question is, why do we love this gear? It looks cool. It gives you that warm, handcrafted tone and often brings a unique vibe to the music. Of course, it has its limitations, and if we're talking drums, we run into problems like its fragility, limited tuning. It's no wonder why these old instruments never see the light of the stage. So where am I going with this? Well, once again, I went back out to KHS America in Mount Juliet, Tennessee, to spend some time with some vintage gear. I'm talking about the Sonar Vintage Series Kit. I had seen and heard these at Summer NAM, but now I had a little one-on-one with these beautiful drums. Uh, 12, 14, 22, and a matching snare. The kick drum, of course, was 14 inches in depth, as it is with all their kick drums, which is awesome. Some specs you should know that make these drums uh, a modern vintage kit. The shells are that hand-selected premium German beach shell with rounded bearing edges. Keep in mind, this comes from the same forest of beechwood trees that were used in the manufacturing of sonar drums from the 1960s. The 
same wood. The recreated teardrop lugs are a big deal. They look and feel just like the original, but now it has Sonar's exclusive tune safe system. In other words, they stay in tune. There are many beautiful finishes you can choose from, like the Vintage Pearl and my favorite, the Red Oyster. And if you include the lightweight series hardware with a setup, these drums would look right at home in a scene from the show Mad Men. It looks, sounds, and feels like a vintage kit, but maintains the quality and reliability of a modern kit. You could really call this a modern vintage kit. So go to us.sonar.com to learn more about the vintage series and find a dealer near you. So let's get to it. Here is Steve Smith. I just finished touring for the year, <laughs> actually, the other day, okay. which it's, you know, like most years, it's been really crazy, lots and lots of different gigs. And so I'm finally, you know, off as far as being on tour, I'm off for the rest of the year, which feels really great. And, you know, I have lots of things to do and songs to work on for next year and stuff, but um, just good not to be touring right now because... You know, every year, the touring is—it's uh, intense, you know. And the year with with Journey and all these other projects that I did, it's you know, it's as busy as any year um, that I do. But I there's always a natural slowdown around December mm-hmm. and early January that seems to occur, which is you know, at that point, I welcome that because. The years, you know, the year from, let's say, the NAM show until Thanksgiving is usually crazy busy. <laughs> right, <laughs> for, right. For me, every year, you know, every year, it's like that. It seems like the industry works around the holidays. Uh, it, it's kind of built into the touring schedule that I think most people experience. Yeah. Did so we take it some downtime at that point? Yeah. Um, on that note, I mean, this has been a, I guess, I'm trying to remember when exactly you started back with Journey. Was that late last year? Well, the announcement was a year ago, mm-hmm. basically like last Thanksgiving time, a year a year from now. It was a year past, you know, like November um, 2015, it was announced that I would be touring with Journey this year. So I really started this year, 2016. And I, you know, so my first dates were in April of this year. And, and then we started at Madison Square Garden, co-headlining with Santana. And then we finished, um, in the Bay area at AT AT&T park on September 4th. And that was like another one with, with like all these Bay area, headliners, really. It was us and Santana, Steve Miller, Doobie Brothers, and Tower of Power. And then since that time, I've been out doing my own gigs. And then this last weekend, we had two gigs with Journey, like kind of under the radar, you know, corporate gigs that we just did in in Palm Springs and, and Scottsdale, Arizona. And now, you know, that was officially done for the year. But, you know, right after the Journey tour ended. I did a week at Birdland with a great acoustic um, group playing the music of John Coltrane. Oh, wow. Because uh, I play there every, well, I play Birdland at least two weeks out of the year. And um, that third week of September is 
John Coltrane's birthday celebration week. So for the past three years, I've, I've done that gig and signed up for it next September as well. So, and that's a great group with Steve Kuhn on piano. And he actually played the train in the early 60s. And then two great sax players, Jaleel Shaw on alto and Eric Alexander on tenor and Lonnie Plaxico on bass. And, and it's totally acoustic straight ahead. And I use like a little jazz kit with an 18 inch bass drum and, you know, one rack tom and yeah. a couple of ride cymbals. And, and so that was, a, you know, a, in a way it was like, I needed the balance after five months of walking the journey. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and so I, I booked a bunch of other gigs and then the next week I was in Tokyo with Steps Ahead, um, with a, with an interesting incarnation of the group that had Bill Evans on sax, Randy Brecker on trumpet, Mike Maneri on vibes and Tom Kennedy on bass. Hmm. And we played for three nights at the Blue Note in Tokyo. Then I went right from there to Europe and I did a week with Bobby Shue Big Band featuring like Buddy Rich alumni like Pat LaBarbera and Andy Fusco and Chuck Finley and Bobby Shue and we were playing the whole Buddy Rich book like two sets of Buddy Rich music and took that on tour of Europe which was super fun and actually in some ways I I felt the, the most difficult to play in a way of uh, just the the demands of a big band. Really? Yeah, because like playing with a small group, that is really um, free. And mainly I have to really watch my dynamics because everyone's in the group is an acoustic musician, you know, Mm -hmm. the upright bass, piano and, and the saxophone. So, you know, but I felt, I found that I could keep my volume well under control. I, you know, I didn't play all that hard on the journey tour. I, that was something I was focused on was not playing too loud, not playing in a way that was going to hurt me in the end, you know, physically hurt me or anything and, and, and play as musically as possible. And, and I did that. And that was something I was actually concerned about when I said I'd do the tour. I didn't, and know you, what it would be like, you, but. right? And you had mentioned when with your interview with Daniel Glass uh, that yeah. he asked about your playing and if it would change if you would be more physically uh, engaged and and in even uh, just from a from a viewing standpoint uh, playing harder and and you said no, you know you yeah, were, no. you're going to just keep it under control in that way. Uh, and and there's lots of videos online, of course, from this tour that uh, we've all. It's been fun to watch. Uh, and you are you you obviously playing at a at a volume, but it's it's encouraging to see and hear the sounds that you're getting without having to go just crazy and arms above your head. But you're just getting this great sound and great energy from yeah. it without. And it's and uh, I know we have a lot of listeners that you know are uh, over the age of forty, uh, as I am, and so it's like we're always looking to that. You know, how do we continue to play at a level and a volume and an intensity without hurting ourselves? Right. Well, as, well, just and that's that's really well put. And but as the twelve went on, I naturally got a little stronger and mm-hmm. and so probably 
you know, by the end of the tour, I was playing in such a way that uh, it wouldn't be possible for me to play at the beginning of the tour. Yet, yet it was still all within a range of you know, being very controlled. Right. But, but being a student of history and and like you mentioned, like Daniel Glass, mm-hmm. his interview, and he and I, you know, pretty good buds, and and you know, we we really have dug into the history, and and of course, I was, I was, you know, a teenager in the '60s when. I first heard, you know, Hendrix with Mitch Mitchell and Ginger Baker with Cream and all of that. And if you go back and 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 really analyze deeply, look into the way those drummers played, as far as you know, volume and, and intensity, mm-hmm. and compare it to drummers today. You know, certain ones like that you're saying are like really they sticks are way up over the heads and they're slamming the drums. Drummers did not play like that in that era in, of the 60s. Right. They were still playing very much like the volume of maybe the shout chorus of a big band. Mm. And and they had seven A or five A sticks. It was before you know big fat sticks, and they had thin cymbals and ambassador heads. And not and, everything was mic'd all the time. <laughs> not everything was mic'd. You know that's true, and and that was somewhat of a problem for those drummers. But um, but you know take from Charlie Watts to Ringo to um, to Mitch Mitchell and Ginger Baker they. They sound fantastic. They sounded great, and yes. but they weren't um, beating their their kits mercilessly, you know. Right, right. And over the years, with probably with the advent of a few turning points like MTV, you know, so there, so things became more visual because right. of videos, right. and drummers started to exaggerate movements just for the physical, you know, visual sense to punk music. You know, becoming popular where you know drummers that really in the in the original days of punk. You know, and I'm not talking about the offshoots of punk, but, but the original punks. You know, was the the idea was I'm not going to learn how to play this instrument, but I'm going to be on stage <laughs> and I'm going to be in a band. Yeah, you know, and those yeah. guys just slam it, slam yeah. the drums, and then and you know, and then I think people want to play in a way that they imagined. John Bonham played, and they imagined he had to play in order to get a big, big, fat, deep groove. And so they slam the drums. You know, they yeah. they play the drums very hard. But it's it's you know it's really not the case. Even Bonham himself didn't play that hard compared to the drummers of today. The drummers of today, a lot of them are you know probably much louder than than John Bonham ever played. But some of the what they lose the plot of, in my opinion, is is internal balance. Like internal balance is really, to me, the key to all of this. So if you just take the kit and just look at it as as an acoustic instrument, and it needs to sound like a cohesive instrument on its own, you have to make judgments of how to play, which volume to play each limb. Mm-hmm. And when, when I'm playing rock, that starts with the bass drum. So whatever the volume that I play the bass drum at, let's say, and it's going to shift depending on the song, you know, whether it's a ballad, whether it's a medium tempo rock or, or up tempo, like, you know, this, this, this powerful as, as you want. 
I, everything's gauged in when that situation by the volume that I play the bass drum. So I don't want to play the snare drum like radically louder than I play the bass drum because it's going to feel top heavy. And so I I cut the snare drum in so it's about equal to slightly below the volume of the bass drum, and then I keep the cymbals below that. So again, so it doesn't feel top heavy. So I mix myself as I play, and then I want the the toms to jump. I'll play the toms at the appropriate volume, so so that inner balance all makes sense. And and again, like especially when I do drum camps and I see young drummers play, like they're very unaware of those individual limbs and what volume each limb is playing at. They just hit the drums hard. Well, <laughs> and not, are not thinking about that overall balance. And, right, and, and I, that's the key. That that's the key to not hurting yourself is to sure, really sure. keep your inner balance really under control. And we've we've discussed this. Uh, with some other people at times about mixing yourself and creating, you know, as far as if you need to adjust the volume of the hi-hat, you don't turn it down in the mix. You adjust your playing. And, and this, is a, this is a thing that I... Nothing new. This is the way drummers have been playing ever since right, the beginning exactly. of the drum set a hundred years ago, only until somewhat recently <laughs> they started well, losing the plot. And I think that there's something that has happened recently that might be a reason for that. And this is an issue that I ran into a couple years ago. I was using in-ears quite a bit over the course of a year. And then when I started doing some other work without in-ears, I noticed that my hi-hat was really heavy-handed. And I think it just developed, this habit developed over time where I was unaware of my own balance uh, yeah. and controlling that. And so I'm curious, watching you play with Journey and knowing that in-ears is now a part of that gig, which it normally isn't for other gigs that you do. Yeah, um, I used in-ears this year for the first time. Right. I've never used How did, did you notice? I mean, I, I know it's only been since April, technically, since the tour, yeah. but... Have you noticed a difference in the way you approach the instrument as far as your balance? No. No, because, well, there's a couple of things. Number one, I record every gig. I have every mm, gig that wow. I play, like all 62 gigs. So, And I record it with my Zoom, just set up by my drone. So I hear the actual acoustic sound of the drums in my balance. And if, and if you know, I don't know if you know, every Saturday on my Facebook page, which is, you know, facebook.com slash vital information. Okay. I put up a, a solo, like a different solo mm-hmm. yeah. from something that I've done in the, you know, in the, in the week or two before. So I'll put up a different journey drum solo, solo or something from Birdland gig or, uh, you know, put something up from that Steps Ahead gig and in Tokyo, something from the, from the Bobby Shoe tour. So, so I can really keep track of my, my volume because I, I listen to it and I really, I'm, I'm pretty critical about what it sounds like. And I'm hearing just the acoustic sound of the drum on that zoom. That's what you hear on that. Okay. And the other thing is the type of in-ears that I got, they have this, like, um, they have these additional speakers or microphones that are like in the in-ears themselves. So I can actually hear the acoustic sound of the drum set. Oh, wow. Okay. And I actually can't remember the name of them. Oh, uh, Sonic, oh, 
Oh, I I can't remember the name of these, <laughs> but they're but they're really a, 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 a great. They're expensive. They were like mm. two thousand bucks or something. But they're really amazing in ears in that you get the mix of the band and and then you have a separate a separate um, knob that you can you just hear what is right in front of you. So That's you can incredible. actually physically, yeah. physically hear your own your the own instrument. So I can I hear it real clearly. That's that's definitely not the ears that I was Sensiphonic. using. Sensiphonic. <laughs> that's what they're called. Sensiphonic. Sensiphonic. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, Sensiphonic. that sounds amazing. I've often wondered about that, if there was a way to keep that. Because sometimes if the advantage of using ears from time to time is when you're playing on a large stage or if you need to run a click for any reason or tracks, right. you've got that yeah. direct uh, point to, to reference. Yeah, it also, and they, I, I mean, I'm, with Journey, it makes total sense because also I'm, you know, I'm playing hard enough where it would, it would be bad for my ears <laughs> if yeah. I didn't have them. Where my other gigs, I don't play, I don't need like in ears and I don't need ear protection because I don't play that hard and, and I really need to hear what the other guys in the band are doing and most of the time I have almost no monitoring or very little monitoring, but just enough to hear like a piano and a sax or whatever the other instruments yeah. are. Did you do anything? Because I want to blend on stage with, with the players. So I'm really yeah. relying on just like hearing them acoustically. Did you do anything to prepare physically for this, for this tour? Yeah. For the, for the journey tour. Yeah, definitely. Like the first thing I did is about two months before the tour, I started working on the tunes because, first of all, I didn't remember them at all. It's been 32 years since I played <laughs> any of the Journey songs, and uh, so I just went to like right back to like I transcribed the records. I transcribed what I played on those records. And this was me, so I could relearn. Yeah, that's and that was like, oh, that's pretty good. You know, I actually <laughs> thought the parts were pretty good, <laughs> but. In some ways, they're a little looser than I remembered them, and and that's kind of interesting. Where, where like a lot of the sessions that I did in the '90s and early 2000s for people, like they'd have these demos, and I would make a chart, and the the demo would have like a drum groove for the verse, and then another drum groove for the chorus, and but it was very uh, exact, and I would play things like that on a record, but I. Re- but when I went back to the journey music, yes, I had like a groove for the verse and a different groove for the chorus, but it wasn't as exact as things became over, you know, things got over that last 30 years. Mm-hmm. I was still very loose with it, very free with it. And that I didn't know or remember. Mm. But, um, but like, if I looked at Stone and Love, for instance, you know, I thought, I played the exact same part here for the verse and then a different one for the chorus. And then when I transcribed it, I was like totally loose. You know, it was really different. And the same, pretty much the same with all the tunes, except for like Don't Stop Believing. That was like a really exact part that I played uh, on the record. But a lot of the stuff was pretty loose. But anyway, so I just, you know, went back and relearned all that. And then I had this, I saved my double bass kit from the 80s my kit that i played on captured escape and frontier it's the same drum set wow. and so it was two 24 inch bass drums and you know six toms and so i i practiced on that so that had been a while 
Plus, I had developed the idea over time of using three snare drums, which I got used to, mm-hmm. um, with vital information even, like having a detuned snare to my left and then a high-pitch snare to the left of that, like a 12-inch snare as a high-pitch snare, a 14-inch snare detuned to like ballads or heavy rockers, and then the main snare. So I got used to playing on... And 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 then, and since I was touring with Hiromi for the last three years... yes. I've been subbing for Simon Phillips. I started playing more open-handed because I had to learn tunes that, you know, play, put drum parts that he played and using three floor tones because he has like the real deep floor tones. So, so that I integrated into this new, you know, new double bass kit, which was a lot of fun and interesting and, and challenging, you know, to play such a big kit. Um, so, you know, I spent a couple months working out on that. And and really in physically training in a way of like uh, yoga. Mm-hmm. I, I have a yoga teacher that came to the house three days a week, and and we do like nine three ninety minute sessions, like not a yoga class but a private lesson. You know, so it was that's, really in detail. Awesome. Yeah, and and I just do, and then I tend to, and then on tour I continue to do yoga like pretty much every day and then before and especially after the show, just to really stretch out the muscles and make sure anything that I, I don't get tightened. Yeah, I, I, love, I love yoga. Uh, is there anything special, like a certain discipline within yoga that you're doing, or is it kind of more of a standard, I hate to use that word, but something that we're more familiar yeah, with? Yeah, I don't think it has a particular name, but it's mm-hmm. just, you know, just... Is um, um, breathing. That's the number one thing, and then holding the, the positions of the asanas, and then and really, you know, making sure that my technique is good. You know, so so again, I'm not hurting myself. It's a know? practice so, for sure. Yeah, and having a private teacher is really a great way to to go with that because I'm getting constant feedback and corrections and 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 i've been doing it for enough that i've been doing for about five or six years okay but i really stepped it up right before the tour and then kept doing it and i still do it you know pretty much every day that's, so that's great that's that's something that's really helped over the years because i have had injuries and yeah. gone to physical therapy and and uh, but i've been able to rehabilitate myself and whatever injury it was without any kind of surgery. So there's balance poses in yoga. And one of the things that I I find really interesting is there's a balance component to playing on the drum set to a degree where you're moving all four limbs and you're centered. There's this center chi that you deal with when you're on the stool and, and sometimes you have to, I mean, everybody kind of has a different way of approaching it, whether it's, putting more weight on one side or, but I have seen some players that seem like they have such a strong center of gravity where everything is moving at once. And I'm so envious of that independence in that way. And I, I, do you notice, has that been a a benefit as well with the yoga as far as being able to do some of that balance or core strength? Is that? Yeah, definitely the, the yoga comes into play in a, in a lot of ways and mm-hmm. it has to do with like you're saying being centered and how how I sit on the mm-hmm. on the drum throne and 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 you know the being aware of like how my hips should be how my feet 
are aligned with the middle of my knee. Yeah, yeah. And and um, and then the lower back is you know sort of like sticking your butt out, and then you you know having to pull in the the core and so everything uh, everything falls into place. But but here's another another I guess aspect of of how to be very balanced on the drum set is to not rely on having your feet on the pedals in any kind of position to maintain your basic balance. And by that, I mean a lot of drummers sit down and they put the beater against the bass drum head and then have their heel up and then their foot closed on the hi-hat, and that is their starting point. Right, right. Now, if that's a starting point, that's a that's a disadvantage because you don't want to to have your beater on the on the head as a as a balance for you, or the hi hat closed at the balance, you know, as to get your center. So my center comes from feet flat on the pedals, heels down, mm-hmm. and the beaters off the head and the hi hats open. I see. That's my that's my starting point. Now that that's a that's a balance. That then if I you know want to play from there. I come back to that as my center. Interesting. And and I see this all the time, especially, you know, with doing this drum fantasy camp and different drum camps that I do. If if you're ba- if you're you need to have your feet on the pedals as your starting point, you're already at a disadvantage. Yeah. And where does seat height come into that? Seat height is that your hip has to be slightly above your knee. Mm-hmm. If your hip is below your knee, that's that's you know a recipe for back back issues. Yes. If your if your thigh is parallel to the ground, that's better. But the best position for your um, for your back and then and in 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 a way and also to manipulate the pedals is to have your hip slightly above your knee. So that's how I gauge the seat height. And then the snare drum, just as I hold a stick and then extend, you know, have my elbows in and, and hands at rest, wherever the tip of the stick is, is where the top of the snare drum falls. I got into town a couple of days ago and grabbed the book. Uh, and Yeah, the pathway, Pathways of Motion. Pathways of Motion, and um, yeah. started digging into it actually late last night. Um, with the holidays, I have family in town, so as everyone was kind of turning in, I was like, um, I'll see you guys in the morning, and put the DVD in, and I thought, I'll just I'll kind of see what this is about. And then, of course, an hour later, <laughs> I'm like, uh-oh. <laughs> um, I play match grip. Uh, I have all my life, but I, I love jazz. I love what the left hand it can do. And one of the things you touched on briefly was, I, I believe it was grip three, uh, and you were talking about French grip and the ability right. of the left hand to have some of the nuanced technique that a traditional grip provides by using... Yeah, because... Exactly. Because, well, like with the, you know, with, uh, with the listeners... <laughs> not having the book in front of them, but <laughs> basically, like the first grip, it's just like how it's like the palm down German grip, essentially. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then that's I call grip one, and then grip two is that same grip, but opening the hand so there's a resonating chamber. You can hear the sticks resonate, and the drum and cymbal opens up more. 
and it engages the fingers so you can have some more finger control versus with grip one, it's mainly like wrist. And with grip two, you can get wrist, wrist and finger together. And then grip three is like the thumbs up uh, French grip with the stick now cradled between the thumb and the first crease of all of the fingers. So with that grip, you really can get a lot of finger control and, and you can you can get a little bit more of an angle of the tip of the stick to the head to get a lighter sound on the snare drum right. for some straight-ahead jazz playing, which is really one of the biggest advantages of traditional grip with the left hand when you're playing jazz is the you, you don't have the full tip of the drumstick on the head, which gives you already kind of a fat sound, but if you want a, a, a thinner sound, like a lighter sound, mm-hmm. it's easy to get that with traditional grip because you can change the angle of the tip to the head easily um, by just putting the stick, let's say, almost straight up and down as the hand, as like if your left hand is like about to shake someone's hand, you know, like that position, and the stick can hang straight down. Well, then you can just have the tip of the stick on the drum. It's pretty much impossible to do that with match grip, but the closest you can get, like you said, is that grip three, that French grip. And so, for instance, you use a lot of times for jazz drummers that watch Bill Stewart play, he'll play that left hand on the snare more from that position because of the sound. And yes, I'm pretty sure that's like interesting you say that. Yeah, that's true. He's getting that sound that, that he's hearing mm-hmm. uh, and, and his body goes to that position to get that. And then grip four is, it's like then you go from that grip of uh, French grip to then keeping the thumb up but but holding the stick just with the back two fingers, which now that's like a very strong sound mm-hmm. because of the range of motion that you can engage with that grip number four. You're not going to get the finesse of the fingers, but you can just get a big sound. And that's, that's the way uh, I see a lot of, you know, heavy rock drummers play from that grip kind of naturally, and that's the way Tony Williams played when he mm-hmm. played that grip mm-hmm. with, with just holding the back two fingers like that. So every grip has its own sound and application and feel and then I mix and match like like you know I you can play symmetrical match grip or you can play a non-symmetrical match grip where one hand might be in the French and the other hand might be in the German again a lot of people do this stuff in a, in a natural way but are not really aware that they're doing it and by bringing awareness to it you just you just can harness harness these techniques more and you know, practice in each particular position so you can enhance your technique in each position. It's it's interesting that you you brought that up on, on the DVD talking about this asymmetrical match grip depending on what needs to be done because each hand has a different role to play. Especially in jazz right. where, you know, one is providing the chatter with the left hand and one is playing the ride cymbal. But there's times yep. that I almost feel guilty when my hands aren't doing the same, but it's like you that you gave me the okay. They're like, look, if uh, you need to play German grip to get the hi-hat thing that you're going for and the left hand needs to be more of the French grip, then you've got to do what you got to do to get the, the yeah. results. Yeah, there's no, like, there's no hard and fixed, like, way of... <laughs> of um, of playing, you know, it, it has to be whatever is right for the feel and the sound. But I'm suggesting that 
by spending time with each position, you can refine each position. So then when you use it, it's, it's, it's going to be under your control. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you use the word, the, uh, ombature of the grip. And I love that. Yeah. yeah, talk, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, you know, there's the ombature of horn blares and, and it's like, yeah, right. well, you're playing an instrument and this is your mouthpiece in essence is your hand and all those different things. And, yeah. and also you made a, a point to, uh, mention that this is drum set technique. Uh, right, and I, I that was nice because uh, one of my more recent interviews was with a really great player who was major into DCI um, drum corps playing and just has great facility and is a heavy hitter and I just I really admire the chops that these players have who spent time doing that and it's something I never did. And there's times I wish I did. It was, I was obsessed with the drum set and just had no other room in my world for anything else growing up. And so I, I wish I had this, but it's nice that it's like, well, yeah, there is a drum set technique that comes from the approach that we take on this instrument. That's not DCI. That's not concert in many ways. And it has different application and, and different reasons. Yeah, or, or classical technique, or yeah. classical mm-hmm. snare drum technique would would be different and then the, the drum corps technique it really works for that world and and really one of the main reasons that it works for that world is because you're playing in a line with other snare drummers for instance mm, right and you have to match stick heights for the visual effect of that i see mm-hmm. so matching stick heights on the drum set, that's something that we, you know, we don't do. Even if you're playing with two drums, nobody's trying to match stick heights. And the problem with matching stick heights is it takes you out of the the natural um, flow of space and time being equal. Meaning, like if I move a certain amount of space, let's say on the ride cymbal, and, and I play a quarter note, and then I pick my hand up and play another quarter note, and my hand fills space in between each one of those quarter notes. That's like an old-fashioned metronome that goes click, 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 and it has to fill a certain amount of space so each one of those clicks is in time. So I don't see stick heights related to volume. I see stick heights related to to time. So, and as I play faster, you know, my stick's going to not come off the cymbals quite so far or, or away from the snare drum quite so far. So, you know, so when, it, when we play the drum set, we want the, the loose grip of the sticks and then to be very free with our emotions. So we create a nice groove. Yeah. And that's not really what's going on with, with drum corps. So this, in a way, I was focusing and saying, like, look, for you drum corps guys that want to play drum sets, let's consider, you know, modifying your technique so it becomes free enough so it really works on the drum set. Right, right. Time is 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 in the air. It's not what you're playing on the on the, the drum or the cymbal. It's it's the complete motion. Yeah. Yes. It's and and we hear we hear an impact, but the complete motion is really the the key to getting a nice groove. And so let's just say because with the drumstick we only hear half of the motion, whereas if you played a shaker. Yes. Or a tambourine, you hear both sides of the motion. Yes, but the drum set, the drumstick, you only hear half of the motion. But still, the entire motion is is critical in order to get the right 
feel and to get the timing right. It's I, I found an egg shaker floating around in my car last week, <laughs> and so I'm always I I love to practice, and I always feel like there's just not enough time in the day in the week to to do what I want to do. So I thought, well, while I'm driving my kids around town. I'll just pick up the shaker, and I could just work on my time feel while I'm doing that. Yeah, sure. Get a lot of inter- interesting looks um, at stoplights. Probably not as much in, Nash- <laughs> in Nashville, but you know, when you're in other towns, they probably wouldn't know what you're doing. Right. Um, well, that's that's great. Uh, so, pathways of motion. I, I again, I'm looking forward to, to digging into this uh, some more, and um, for anybody that. And I'm still working on all of it. You know, it's still a work in progress for me. So I'm. You know, that's just like gives you some ideas of some of the things that I'm working on myself. And, and you know, it, it goes back to you want to just take it one step back of how it even came up for me. Is, is I started playing more match grip to give my left hand traditional grip a break because yeah. I was, you know, I was starting to get some deterioration of the, what it's called the CMC joint. It's the, it's the, the, it, the joint at the base of the thumb. So I started playing that script, which felt like a little easier to do, but I realized how bad my technique was. So so I started looking at what my right hand was doing and going, wow, my right hand is is really refined. Let me just examine what I'm doing. And that's how I discovered my right hand was doing all this stuff, you know, playing in all these positions and and had had very refined motion. So I just sat in front of the mirror and got my left hand to try to do exactly what my right hand was doing by, first of all, just playing like unison things, like exact unison. I love that and, concept. And really, That's a really, that was a really mind-blowing idea, is that you're using one yeah. hand to teach the other hand, and when I read that yesterday, I thought, That's brilliant. Especially, you referenced this as well, how strong your right hand can be in certain positions because of the time that you spent playing the ride symbol and how it knows, Amazing. especially, yeah, right. especially exactly. as a French that, grip, for most of us, we understand that with the right hand less, more so than sometimes the left hand. Yeah. So then I started like playing just two ride symbols or like a ride symbol on the yes. right and playing the hi-hat, like just playing the jazz ride beat for like playing along with with music and just playing time and just really examining. It's, it's got to be Pat Metheny though. You, if you're going to do two ride symbols, it's got to be Pat Metheny. Otherwise, <laughs> what's the point? Channeling your inner yeah. um, uh, Paul Wardico, I guess. <laughs> or depending on which era, yeah, right, exactly. Paul Wardico. Oh yeah, right, right, right. Uh, yeah. Okay, then, uh, yeah. Antonio Sanchez. Oh right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. So I want to talk about the Nashville Drummer Jam, and certainly give them some props for introducing uh, me to you uh, to, to make this happen. So uh, big props to uh, David Parks for making this happen. So um, just briefly, so people know, and we've uh, helped support them in the past, and of course being local here in Nashville, at least I am, my co-host is based out of Atlanta right now. And Mm-hmm. is uh, twice a year they do a tribute to a drummer and it's in the past it's included everyone from most recently Phil Collins and uh, uh, Neil Peart and um, Alex Van Halen uh, Jeff Beccaro, John Bonham and this December you are the one who's the tribute is going to be for I have the fortunate 
opportunity to live in a town with just so much talent and so many great uh, drummers, and there's a great camaraderie amongst the drummers here and uh, and support amongst each other. So it's really nice to go out and support and see these great players um, honor a lot of our heroes. So that being said, um, the question I have um, for you that ties into all this is, uh, you seem to take on, I wrote this out, so it's the, I am literally reading this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, you seem to take on the responsibility of being a drummer of influence with grace and integrity. What keeps you focused on the next thing, and does the responsibility ever become overwhelming? <laughs> Is that heavy enough for you? question. <laughs> Um, well, I, you know, by being, I think, first of all, by being a band leader, um, and going on tour with my vital information group and then being in a, in a situation where I'm being hired to be, let's say like a featured sideman, like on tour with Mike Stern and Hiromi, mm-hmm. there's a certain amount of expectation and pressure that, that comes with that because people are coming to see, well, first of all, people are hiring me because of they want what I, what I do. And it's, and it, first of all, I think you'd say it's just, it has to do with a level of musicianship where we can communicate at a high level. Yes. We can make the music happen at a high level. And then a lot of times it's that the music is really hard and they want somebody that can play really hard music. And sometimes I think, what, what you know, what have I gotten myself into here? Because <laughs> <laughs> sometimes people send me, like Hiromi was sending me these charts, and they're in like 27.8, and it's like, oh my God, you know? You, you know, you just can't sit down and do that right away. But yeah. I have, the let's say, the skills to know how to work myself up to that and, yeah. and take steps and takes time. And then, you know, and learn, learn music, learn the difficult music. And then, but then get on stage and and perform it. So I, there's just a certain drive that I have that that I put myself into these positions of, and then but careful what you wish for, you know, because then you got to come through and, and deliver. And it, you know, it's always a challenge. And it's and but but there's something about it that keeps music for me and interesting, keeps my life interesting. That I put myself in in those positions, and or you know, clinic tour or an appearance at some drum festival or whatever. So, in a way, I'm I've conditioned myself to be in these fairly stressful situations, but come through yeah. with with you know with what with uh, hopefully living up to people's expectations, but. Uh, you know, but I work pretty hard at it, you know, and so, right. you know, I'm off, I'm still practicing and working, working on music and, and working on ideas. And, and, um, so, you know, I don't, I don't know that I'm looking, you just said the phrase something like, you know, the next thing, or, you know, what I'm just, I'm really just dealing with what's going on right now. Sure, sure. And what's the next I think maybe what's the next thing coming up for me, but I know what it is, so I have the I have um 
the boundaries that I'm working within. Like then, you know, like like I was talking about after that the journey tour, I had like these other tours. Well, okay, I had to learn particular music for the steps gig, so I and you know tunes for the Coltrane thing. So, you know, I know what I'm going to do that week, and then <laughs> and I start like a couple of weeks before start working on it, and then I have when I finished that. Um, European tour with Bobby Shoes Band. Then I had a two-week clinic tour of China. Wow. Well, that's a chance for me to do my own thing. It's pretty much wide open. Mm -hmm. And so I I prepared a bunch of solo pieces that I wanted to play there. You know, and of course, I'm going to be teaching and, and, and talking about music and, of course, through a translator. So I have to be careful not to go too far because it's too difficult with the language barrier to get mm. too deep into it. But, mm. you know, I, but, you know, to, to try to come up with a plan of what to talk about where I'm general enough um, that it's going to come across to, to the audience. And then with certain questions, okay, then I can get specific if, if I have certain questions from the audience, but I prepared a lot of solo pieces um, that, that included uh, Indian rhythms and, you know, mm-hmm. conical and all this kind of stuff. So it was my chance to do that, like more or less, let's say, like a solo tour, you know. So so I wanted to cover a lot of bases. And uh, well, in, in, so I do that. And it's, yeah, yeah I, don't, I don't know how, how mm-hmm. I think it other than, you know, I, I, I put these challenges in front of myself and then just, you know, put myself through whatever it takes to get to the to get to the end result. Well, that's and I think this this other question is kind of related to that. Is there's a um, you have a and and before the the journey tour uh, came about, um, it seems like there's a lot. And you mentioned band leading. How much of your schedule happens organically, or how instrumental are you in creating this uh, schedule? To fill your um, year, to fill your year it, out. Yeah, it's it's well. At this point, um, it's it's something like fifty fifty. Okay. Um, but but I but um, if if we go back to to somewhere in the in the the nineties, my focus was just to take everything that came my way. Mm. And you know, and 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 to do sessions, you know, to do to do recording sessions, studio work, and to do touring with different bands that called, like not rock bands. I was not interested. Like I did have a couple calls from rock bands, but I I'm, I just was only interested in playing jazz live, and so that's led to like steps ahead and Mike Stern and different, you know, Bill Evans and touring with different people like that. Yeah. But. And then I'd get calls for clinic tours, and Jillian or Sona would put something together. And but somewhere in the late '90s, early 2000s, I decided that I was really going to take myself like out of the loop of studio playing, because after a while, it was like an itch. I wanted to, I scratched the itch, and it was, <laughs> and I got it. <laughs> you know, in other words, I did the studio work to the point where I felt like I could do a good job at it, but then it felt like no longer necessary to continue to do it. What I did want to do was be a band leader. That became more important. And and I realized I really couldn't do both, because if I 
booked to sessions. I couldn't get my agent. Then I, I got an agent that's to book my band, and and I need to set time aside. Like we have like the whole month of, of October or like October November, and you know for you to work on trying to get us a tour of Europe, for instance. So she would like you know. So I have to have time set aside that I'm not going to book anything else. And so that's that was like a big change around the early 2000s that I I more or less took control of saying I'm not available for anything other than my being my own band leader for this two months here and then and then maybe uh like March April May at this part of the beginning of the year and and uh, but the middle of the, the summer usually like it was like something like a a European tour with a jazz group because that's when most European tours happen with jazz groups. So I'd be a side man because I, I wasn't a big enough name to be a band leader in the summer jazz tours of Europe, but I was a big enough name to be a side man with Randy Brecker and Bill Evans and Soul Bob or Mike Maneri Steps Ahead or Mike Stern Quartet or something like that. Mm-hmm. So, so that's why I would do the summertime jazz tours in Europe and they pay real well. They pay much better than being a band leader. <laughs> and and then, you know, and then I would be a band leader uh for a couple of months in other times of the year. And so so that focus of having an agent and setting aside time and booking gigs, that just has has developed and developed so to the point where now, like right bef- right before I did you know, journey this year, I could fill up a lot of touring with other people and then touring, you know, for not a lot with my own band, but it would be like, you know, a a month at the beginning of the year and a month towards the end of the year, like spring and fall. And, and then, you know, various gigs living in New York, you know, I have an apartment in New York and I spend at least half of the year in New York, like just gigs around New York. And so, it's like I get a lot of calls. I probably say no to about fifty percent of my calls. Wow! Um, Thanks for saying just yes. Because, to yeah, and it's just <laughs> and it's because I can't make them. That's number. You know, mm-hmm. maybe I just can't make it, or certain things I just I really don't want to do. Like there's certain sessions I don't want to do. Like somebody will call me, and it's like, and you know, an unknown artist, and and I want you to play on four songs and do you have a home studio? Can you do this? Mm-hmm. Well, no, I don't have a home studio. <laughs> and even if I did, <laughs> I don't really want to do it because <laughs> yeah. I just would rather do something else. You know, there's something else that's more interesting for me to do. 20 years ago, I probably would have said yes, but you know, but things change as you get older and things change as your priorities change. And, and I've been fortunate that I've been able to follow my own artistic inclinations and, 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 and there is, there are enough people that want to hear what I Well, and it do. sounds like it's taken a little bit of time. Yeah, I'd yeah. say. <laughs> <laughs> is, that the understatement? is that the understatement of this interview right now? Yeah, no, it takes time. I'm 63 years old, you know, but, you know, but it's been, and so I've been working on this for 40 years, basically. Mm. practicing and keeping your chops up and you know and and i do do that in between my touring but it doesn't take the place of playing music with other musicians yes yeah 
you know, so you can't just practice jazz and expect your jazz shops to stay up because you need to be in the moment of making those decisions and playing with people and having that experience. That's what develops in any in any style. And in fact, that's a big reason of why I book so much work for myself after that five month journey tour. It's it's like it's a balance. It, you know, it, it balances out things as far as yin yang, you know, just the, yes. the, 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 the playing in the big rock world for five months like that. Well, I needed the balance of playing acoustic jazz in a jazz club and playing with a big band and playing with a fusion group and checking in like a diagnostic, make sure I can still do all this stuff. Right. <laughs> you right. know, I just, I just really wanted to, to do that and stay in touch with that. So I get what you're saying. And it's important if, if it's important to you, to stay in touch with like lots of different things, you have to. You just have to try to get those gigs, like book some gigs, yes, schedule them in there, and and do them. And and uh, there's only so much that, you can do I, in the practice. That, yeah, yeah, and it's good. It's important stuff to do, but it is. It's not the same as actually getting out playing. Right, right. Um, another thing. One of the things I wanted to ask you about is. Um, Neil Peart talks about the time that he uh, worked with you on the Burning for Buddy project and noticed this change in your playing or noticed just at the level that you were playing at. And he, I've heard this story before, it was like, what happened? And you said, Freddy Gruber. And that kind of, then he went that direction. What was that experience like? And uh, was there anything... uh, significant about what he taught you that maybe affected your playing from that point on? Well, first of all, there's a lot that he... Right, yeah, I, mean, I can imagine. Definitely, <laughs> definitely, you know, is with me, you know, permanently with me. Um, but just, just for a, a little bit of background, Neil Pert and I played on an album together, uh, a Jeff Berlin record called Champion. Wow. And we actually played, yeah, that's how like he was familiar with like let's say before and after. We he had played he played like we were in the studio together to play with Jeff Berlin. It was an album, like I said, called Champion. It was Jeff Berlin's first solo record, and then it was with Scott Henderson on guitar, T Lavitz on keyboards, and, and I played drums on, you know, ninety percent of the record. Um, Neil played on one song and then one song we, we played together, double drums. Oh. And that was like '86 or something like that. It was okay. some somewhere in the, you know. And so I was still like very much playing in in the the journey style, you know, that I had played with traditional grip, quite a bit of traditional grip, but holding the sticks way in the back and not really being aware of the balance point and things like that. The funny thing is, if you if you if you go back far enough in my background, I had good techniques when I was in high school, but then I compromised it uh, when I went on tour with Journey, because yeah. um, you know, I have pictures of myself playing in those days, and my grip looks exactly the same as it looks now. But then I, you know, I, I compensated for volume and thought I had to play real out with Journey in, in the 80s, and so came up with a way of doing it, but it, but it compromised my technique. But I, I really wasn't so insightful that I knew what I was doing at that time, but Freddie helped me by 
you know, opening opened me up to like being aware of the balance point. That was really the first lesson was learning where the balance point of the stick was. So once I set an object into motion, it stayed in motion versus every stroke being an individual event. And if you don't use balance point to like have to have a stick sort of being in perpetual motion, each each stroke is an individual event. So so it's not it becomes much harder to play. And so you know, he would start maybe with the ride symbol and how you can just play the ride symbol in such a way where it sort of feels like it plays itself after a while and wow. you get out of the way. And, that, and that's like a lot of his messages is how to get out of your own way and let, you know, let the sticks just do the work. You set it in motion, but allow rebound to happen. That's like a big, big part of it. And and I covered a lot of this on my 2002 DVD drum set technique history of the USB. Okay. And but but I will point out it's very similar to the way JoJo plays. It's like that you know it's universal principles of motion is the way that Freddie called it. He had a little phrase: universal principles of motion. So it was you know when you drop a drumstick and you're holding it in the right balance point, what it wants to do is is simply you know, rebound and then it'll come down and hit the drum head again and jump, come back again. Whereas if you hold the stick tightly or without the balance point, the stick comes down and it goes boom and then it stops. Mm-hmm. You know, and so a lot of what he's talking about or talked about was getting that stick to just stay in motion once you set it in motion. So anyway, my my lessons with Freddie were they started in about 1990, I think. It's hard to remember exactly, but it was either 90 or 91. And uh, and Ian Wallace introduced me to, to Freddie, and Peter Erskine had like told me Freddie's looking for you because he saw my 1987 DCI video and said I can help this guy. <laughs> <laughs> so he. And Peter called me and said, Freddie Gruber's looking for you. And I was like, who's Freddie Gruber? And so he told me, you know, he's this drum guru that lives in L.A. And, and anyway, I eventually met him, and and I could relate to his methods and his message. And so my lessons with him would be something like, you know, in his house for six hours. And out of that six, or and it would be like, you know, from 10 p.m. to <laughs> whatever, four o'clock in the morning or something. Yeah. And out of that, we'd have maybe one good hour of a lesson, That's you know, because otherwise he, it was just like talking about, he'd just talk about everything from his health insurance to his girlfriend or whatever. It was just, <laughs> <laughs> it was a very unique experience, but, but I, you know, I was able to take that. And then I worked on a few ideas for like a few months and then I'd go back and see him again for another six hours immersion. And so that that would be like three times, four times a year over the course of about three or four years. And so I started to really understand what he was saying and I and I could harness the ideas and, and work on them. And they take time. It's, you know, a lot of this stuff is super um, subtle and just takes a very relaxed approach where you just drop in the stick and, and watching it bounce and then figuring out how to move your hand so that continues to stay in motion. So I think by 1993, that's when I did that Buddy Rich uh, 
record that Neil produced mm-hmm. with Buddy Rich's big band, and then he saw me playing, and it was like, what happened to you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, you're, you're playing really different than when we did that record together with Jeff Berlin. And so I told him that I'd been studying with Freddie Gruber, and of course, Freddie happened to be there at those Buddy Rich sessions because he was such a good friend of Buddy Rich's, and he was there visiting the guys in the band and saying hi to Kathy, and so, um, Kathy Rich, you know, mm-hmm. Buddy's daughter, and, and so, um, so they met, you know, at, at that point, and I know Neil spent time studying with Freddie as well, and a similar thing happened with Dave Blackwell, too. Dave, Dave asked me about what I was doing, because he, he could see the difference in my playing, and, and I told him about Freddie. Now, he already knew Freddie, but didn't didn't really know if he should take him seriously or not. And I and I said, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you should take him seriously. He knows what he's talking about. Yeah. So then, you know, Dave ended up studying with him, and that really, you know, developed his, he, like, it's like fine-tuned his technique. And in a way, that's what I think I got from Freddie. I already had pretty good technique and good, good, you know, good foundation to begin with, and Freddie just helped me really focus and fine-tune it, as he did with Dave as well. But it it also you also mentioned just the time factor, and just being patient, and these things take time, and sometimes oh, yeah, it, it's yeah. it's that's that's a tough thing sometimes to want to. Um, it's 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 hard to accept that I guess is what I'm saying. Sometimes, yeah, in our I guess in instant society, one of the things I wanted to ask you maybe kind of closely related to to that idea is uh you know the way musicians and drummers learn to learn their instrument and learn music and learn to create music has changed so much especially in the last 10 15 years um what's your take on that uh, as far as kind of how the internet has uh, delivers information and people are learning. What What is your opinion about how that may shape the future of music and musicians? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I do see that there are a lot of drummers, young drummers, that are, can really play the instrument. Mm-hmm. You know, they they have... They are able to play. I was just like I just was in China and and, and I did a bunch of clinics there and and they they would have and I, and they were at drum and they were at music school. Most of them were music or like drum schools, you know. So they'd have young young people as let's say the opening act, you know, like like in one city. Like a twelve-year-old girl went out and played a Dave Weckl play along in seven with a left foot clave, and, and and she was and she played it really well. I yeah. mean, it was kind of amazing. You know, it wasn't not kind of it was amazing. Right, right. And 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 so and and I've I've seen uh, things like that often these days, where young people are are playing, let's say, at a higher level than people of my generation may have done. Um, but I do think, but, there's a but, there's a big, a big a but, big, but big is that she was playing with a track, you know, with headphones on and, and playing extremely loud. And, 
you know, all the things that would get you fired if you were doing that in real time with real musicians, especially mm-hmm. acoustic musicians. Mm-hmm. So, so, so there, it's like a, there, there's no substitute for playing with real musicians, you know, that, so we can, you know, people can learn how to play the instrument. Mm-hmm. They can learn, you know, play along with play along tracks and, and, you know, play with headphones and, and and get to high skill levels, but but that's still then to take the step of playing with musicians and playing real music without a click track, you know, without a track and and acoustically control your levels and, and keep time uh without clicks and you know, keep time and play just like what a, the definition of a of a good drummer when I grew up was one that could play nice feel and steady time and muse you know had good musicianship. I got, I don't think that will ever go out of style. Right, right. So 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 I I guess where I see it going is you know a lot of people may have highly developed drumming skills, but they still have to develop their musicianship and really there's no substitute for that other than playing with live musicians and and playing on stage and in a club and all the different environments that we play and learning how to play in a room like there's like again one of the most overlooked concepts of like playing so it's totally appropriate for the size of the room that you're in like when i teach a drum fantasy camp and we're in the classroom the size of a classroom like where you went to third grade or something (laughs) but you're playing as if you're playing at madison square garden there's a disconnect there yeah it's like hey look at the size of the room we're in you're blowing us all out of the room like play in a way so it sounds good and i don't have to hold my ears when i'm sitting five feet away from you as if i was a an acoustic bass player and on one side an acoustic piano on another do you have the control to do that no probably for the most part no is the answer for most of them so you know so it's got it's got its it's it's plus and and then not that that's a minus that they, you know, they still need to go through the. But it's something that. The, that's music, something, but but yeah. they may not be aware of that yet. Mm-hmm, but right. hopefully they'll figure that out. You know they'll yeah. they'll have to, otherwise you know their life will be just posting, play alongs on the on the internet. <laughs> so, well, and it seems like a lot so, of those the, those concepts are more important now than ever because people can recreate with samples and and. I mean, just some of the, the the things that I hear young producers create in the studio without a human drummer sounds pretty amazing. I mean, relative yeah. to 10, 15, 20 years ago. So it almost seems like that stuff has more currency because all those concepts, the musicianship, the ability, the ability to play to a room and all those things, because that that's what if they're going to hire a person to play the drums either even in the studio or otherwise you have to be able to do all those things otherwise a machine can do you know what i'm saying i guess um it just it's yeah but yeah but you're forgetting like okay working drummer that's that's your mm-hmm, name yes. of your podcast okay so let's say you live in Kansas City and you're not getting called to do a studio gig you're getting called 
to play in a jazz trio yes. at the local, you know, at the local high-end hotel in the center of town, or an R&B gig at, at a club or something. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's there's, there's drummers like this all over the U.S., all over the world, that are working drummers. They're not necessarily getting hired to be on a record. You know, they're, they're just, mm-hmm. they're working. And maybe they're not even, you know, professional musicians. Maybe they just play uh, on the weekends mm-hmm. or something like that. You know, but, but that skill of musicianship is what is going to have them, keep them getting callbacks and, right. and expanding their world and, yeah. and, and, you know, keeping them, keeping them working is that musicianship and you know some some people are playing along with tracks and doing doing that kind of stuff even in in local gigs but but for the most part it still gets down to being able to keep time without a click (laughs) just playing with musicians and making it feel good and having a nice communication with, with the people that you're on stage with yeah, you're very right, and and that's another thing that uh, has been wonderful about having. Uh, back in January, I started working with a co-host, Zach Albeda, who's a great player, a great jazz player, and 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 is now living in Atlanta. But he spent time in Kansas City, where he studied, and he spent yeah. uh, probably about six years in L.A. working. Um, so he, he's bringing a lot of that element that sometimes isn't as pervasive here in a in a music business town like Nashville where you right. are expected to do, there's a list, a, a criteria of, you know, working with ears, working with the click, working with tracks, you know, all these things. Uh, not obviously a lot of them, but but that just seems to be the... Um, yeah, and that's something that, you, that the, yeah, the, the, the new musician has to be able to do. Exactly. But let's yeah. not keep, keep loose track of, like, the, the really the basics. Yes. The other, you know, the basic basics. Yes. Is, is just playing with musicians and, mm-hmm. and, and having good time. Why, why did Hal Blaine get called so much to, to, and Bernard Purdy to do those records that they did? It wasn't because they played with clicks, because they didn't play with clicks. Mm-hmm. They had good time without clicks. Yes. Ringo had good time without a click. Yes. You know, all, all of those all of those records that we love and from the sixties and seventies, they they very I I'd say probably very few to, of them were ever made with clicks or anything like sure, that. So sure. the definition of a good drummer when I grew up was that you had to have good time, good feel and good time. And I never even played with a click, I don't think until nineteen eighty five. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> and that's and so you know, and 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 that was a rough transition for me. But but, you know, none of the journey records up until Raised on Radio, none of those were done with clicks. Wow. So the Frontiers, you know, and Evolution and Escape and all of those records, we just we played. And yeah. and we weren't unique, you know. That's what all bands did in those days. Yeah. So that and that kind of musicianship doesn't go out of style. Yeah, I love that. I love that, Steve. I I, I really appreciate this, man. Uh, I'm I'm excited to share this uh, with our listeners, and I just appreciate you taking the time uh, to talk to me. Sure. Awesome. And as far as the the tribute in Nashville, it was Ed. 
Huff that, that told me about that because I toured with him all summer. Like the Doobies were on yeah, tour with, yeah, yeah, and with, with, with Journey, and we had a great time. And I loved listening to him play every night. And, and he was the one that told me about this, and I was like at first, like kind of scratching my head, like, "What do you mean a tribute? <laughs> a tribute to me? It's like, yeah, I'm not old enough. I'm like, or well, maybe I am, you know, <laughs> and I'm still alive, you know. Like the only tributes I've done are like for Bloody Rich or you know, people that are no longer with us. So it was kind of a, a little bit of a surprise to hear that. But then I heard, okay, like Alex Van Halen and all these other guys, they're still with us. So yeah. then, it, then I felt okay about it. <laughs> but <laughs> but it's, I mean, I was pretty, it's pretty interesting. It's, it's an honor, really, that, you know, drummers get together and wa- want to play music that I've played. And, and uh, so I know a lot of people are going to be playing Journey tunes, I think, at least one person hopefully will play a vital information. Oh, yeah, too. yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> so, yeah, so yeah. it sounds like a great event, and, and uh, I'd like to be there, but I won't be able to be there, but I'll, I look forward to hearing all about it. Yeah, it's they're they're a lot of fun, and again, the, it just it showcases the community that this town has um, amongst the drummers, and it's really a lot of fun, and it's for charity, and so. Yeah, make a wish. Like whatever money we were able to make, uh, yeah. we'll donate to Make a Wish, which is a great charity. Yeah, yeah, wonderful, wonderful. No, this is great. And again, uh, looking forward to digging into your your book. And um, just, I, I just can't thank you enough for for taking my a pleasure. Of time. Yeah, great, great, great. Well, let me just, and I'll, but this, I'll, I want to mention one more thing because sure. I'm pretty much focused on this like every day when the final details of this. But I'm working with a company called Scene 4, and, and I put out some artwork a couple of years ago. Yes, yes, I saw that. And, and, yeah, and it's, uh, and it's a web, the website is called stevesmithdrumart.com. And, and, and they came up with the idea of, of like rhythm on canvas, is what they call it. So you go into the, a darkened room would play with lighted drumsticks and they do a time-lapse photography and it comes up with some pretty awesome images that then are put on canvas. So the next, the next step is they, they want to put out a book with all of these images and I have uh, 13 pieces. Mm -hmm. So my idea, and I was pretty inspired. It was at the beginning of this year, it was January of this year when we started talking about it. And then I, you know, the journey tour was coming and, and I wanted to just document some, some creativity. So when they had the idea of doing the book, I said, what if I make a different drum solo for each piece of art and create like a solo album, literally where each solo is related to one of these pieces of art, Wow! which they like the idea. And, and it'll be in the book as an LP. As a, as a vinyl record. Okay. So I, you know, so I booked studio time, went into the studio and, and treated it like I was making a, you know, a serious album, but, but play. And I ended up with 14 solos, like seven aside. Okay. Because uh, one of the pieces of art, I did part one and part two. So it's 20, like 23 minutes aside. And, um, we're working on the final details of just getting all the credits and the photos and everything. Right. And, and uh, we're going to be putting the book out probably in the next couple of weeks. It'll be available. We're just talking about that today, like when when we can actually offer it. So it's it's called the Fabric of Rhythm. It's, it's basically like what they call a coffee table book, mm-hmm. and 
it'll have, you know, my art images, a lot of cool photos from the studio and from, you know, different gigs that I've done, including, you know, gigs that I did in like the seventies with oh, big wow. bands. And you can see my grip from 1974, <laughs> stuff like that. And a vinyl LP with 14 solo drum pieces that are, each one is like, is literally a composition um, focused on representing a certain piece of art. It was a very creative endeavor, really, to come up with with music, with um, you know, keeping art and music in mind together and trying to make them work together. But it was super fun. And, and, I've seen and some of the experience. images online too. It's 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 really cool. It's very colorful, and and you see, it's almost um, you see the grip, the the effect of your um, yeah. Of your technique you, through light. Because you're seeing the space in between the notes. Yes. You actually are seeing mm-hmm. the space in between the notes because of you can follow the pathways that the stick is making through space. So it's, yeah, it's, it's a cool concept. I was really happy to do that. And they're going to make 250 copies of this book in LP and they'll all be signed and numbered. So, um, I love it. That, so check it out. I love it that when you know people are thinking about pictures of themselves in 1974, and and they're thinking, "Oh my gosh, look at my hair! Look at that shirt I was wearing!" You're like, "Look at my grip." Well, I had hair. I know, I know. Yeah. But that's your concern. Yeah. Yeah. Look at that, <laughs> that grip is so 1974, man. What's wrong with me? And I'm sitting super low, like my hips definitely below my knees. I was like sitting like you know 12 inches off the ground Jeez. or something. <laughs> it's pretty funny. That's great. So, and I had a fives kit. Oh wow! I forgot even I had a fives kit back then, but I had a little, you know, like a jazz kit, but made, you know, the fives kit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think they're our sponsor this next month. No, I'm kidding. It's not. It's going to be. <laughs> it's actually going to be. Summer. But actually, next year, check it out. Next year will be the 40th anniversary of me playing sonar drums. So we have a 40th anniversary snare drum mm-hmm. coming out mm-hmm. uh, that we introduced at the NAMM show. So um, well, I've been, you know, just super happy being with them all this time. Great company, great drums. And they they've are. been super supportive to me. It, and it's funny, we, we don't dive into a lot of gear talk on, on this. It's people really like life stories and, and you know, things that our vocation brings that's unique. Uh, but uh, with KHS, they, they're like, you've got to check out these uh, the new vintage series. And Oh, I love them. Yeah, that's a great kit. It's, they sound and look amazing. They're really, yeah. they're really cool. Really cool. But Steve, I'm going to let you go, man. I, I Again, happy holidays. It's a busy week, and um, I'm excited to um, share this. And I think we're gonna, I'm going to have it out um, a week before, a few days before the tribute, so everyone can get revved up and know more about Great. about you. And then uh, we can really dive in and just in, and have a Steve Smith week. If you will. <laughs> sounds, sounds good. Thanks so much for the opportunity to, to be uh, in your webcast. It's, that's very cool. And I, I look forward to seeing you the next time I'm down in Nashville. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll send you, uh, I'll, I'll keep in touch and, and, and let you know when it's, yeah. I think on the 7th, December 7th is when I want to get this episode. And it's an, uh, it's an audio podcast and Ed Toth has been a guest on here as well. If you're ever interested in, in hearing uh, his actually two-hour talk that <laughs> we ended up doing, that was after whittling it down and editing. 
Um, it was probably the longest I've ever had. But anyways, um, Steve, thanks again. Have a great night, and um, I'll, All right. I'll, I'll, I'll be in touch. Sounds good. All right, Matthew. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So there it is. There was Steve Smith. As you can tell, super nice, super easy to talk to, and I hope I get a chance to hang and talk with Steve again sometime. I'm just a, a huge fan, probably more so now. And uh, like I said, this is the week of Steve Smith. I've got his book I'm digging into. Uh, hopefully, you're digging into this podcast. And then if you're close to Nashville or you're in Nashville and you can come to the Nashville Drummer's Jam, that would be a good way to spend a week. So again, my thanks to David Parks from the Nashville Drummer Jam for connecting me with Steve. That was super awesome, and I appreciate him so much for doing that. Also, my appreciation goes to Mike Jackson for his technical help and uh, cleaning up some of this interview to make it uh, easy to listen to. Tune in next week for Zach Albetta's interview with another great drummer. If you can, take some time, just less than a minute, to go to our website and you'll see the survey pop up. Just 10 quick questions and you'll be entered into a contest to get some heads from our friends at Aquarian. So again, appreciate your support, and I hope to see you around. Bye-bye.